Oh, Father, you are a good and wonderful God. And as Nate prayed just a moment ago, you are so worthy. You are high. You are lifted up. You are good and kind. Lord, everything about you is pure. Lord, forgive us when our motives aren't pure. Forgive us when we act like the Pharisees that we'll, we'll look at our passage this morning. And God, thank you so much for your son, Jesus. Thank you that he came to earth, lived the perfect life, obeyed the law perfectly. And he died on the cross for our sins. He rose again to new life. And thank you that through faith in him, we can have forgiveness of our sins. Lord, we know you are a good God and you provide for all our needs. And most especially for the need of restoration in our hearts. And restoration in our families and our lives. And of ultimately our bodies through faith in you. So, uh, Lord, would you help us? Lord, uh, understand more on how to uh, know you in a truer sense and also live those truths out. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 1. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some Pharisees said... Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? All right, so here we see this scene uh, on the a Sabbath day. is a day from the, in the Old Testament that God set apart for rest and restoration. People were not to do work, and neither are there animals to do work. But it's to, to rest and to be restored physically, also relationally. You'd spend time with family. You'd go learn about the Bible. And it's, a, it's intended to be a day of restoration. And at this time, we see G, uh, Jesus and his disciples walking through a grain field. And according to Deuteronomy 23, you're permitted to uh, take some grain out of someone's field, whoever it may be. And, and you can crush it up in your hands. And then, uh, you know, you can blow off the chaff, throw it in your mouth. And it'd be kind of like eating uncooked oatmeal. Uh, not super tasty sounding, but it's something if you want a quick snack, you can do that. So here are these Pharisees following the disciples and Jesus around. And they see that the disciples do that on a Sabbath day. And I don't know, my mind goes to a scene like, like don't these guys have something better to do? Than like, you know, I pick and they're like, there's like the Pharisees like in the bushes and they pop up. You know, and they're like, like, these guys are just following around, seeing if their disciples will do something that is not permitted to do on the Sabbath. Now, why is the Sabbath such a big deal? Well, during this time, uh, the nation of Israel was occupied by the Roman Empire. So the Israelites could not worship or do commerce or live the way that they wanted to live. But one thing they could do is keep the Sabbath. So what that means is that Sabbath keeping became the marker for Jewish identity. Let me say that again. Sabbath keeping came the, became the key marker for Jewish identity. So if you obeyed the Sabbath, you were on the good side. If you didn't, like all those pagan Romans, you were on the bad side. But what we see, that wasn't as simple as that. These groups of religious people, including the Pharisees, they were 
uh, adding on to the permits, uh, parameters of the Bible. So we see that the, the fourth commandment is to observe the Sabbath. But what these Pharisees were doing was they were adding these long, long lists of things that you could do or cannot do on the Sabbath. And here are a few of them. And, and many Orthodox Jews obey these very things today. You couldn't boil water. You couldn't uh, light a candle or blow out a candle. So uh, Orthodox Jews, they won't turn on or off their light switch. You couldn't uh, put new shoelaces on your shoes. Uh, riding or racing was prohibited. If you had a bowl of fruit, you couldn't pick out the rotten fruit. Um, uh, you couldn't make bread. And you couldn't walk a certain distance. So these Pharisees added a list of do's and don'ts to what the Bible already teaches. So what are they saying here? That the, that the, uh, the disciples pulled some heads of grain. Well, that's harvesting. They crushed it and blew off the chaff. That's winnowing. They tossed those grains in their mouths and chewed it up. And that's making bread. So here, the, here are the Pharisees accusing the disciples they say, hey, why are you doing what's not permitted on the Sabbath? But really they were saying, why do you do what we think you shouldn't do on the Sabbath? Well, let's see, um, let's see the response from Jesus. Verse 3. And Jesus answered them. Let me just, quick, quick aside. You know, many of us get accused of things that Maybe we shouldn't be or accused of things that are harmful to us. You know, you know, the disciples were being accused of something. And who went to their defense? Jesus. It's probably best to let Jesus defend us than try to ferret out every single accusation against us. Anyway, that's, uh, that's a freebie. Um, for verse 3. Jesus answered them, Have you not read that David did, uh, what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God, and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And then and he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now I want to focus on that key phrase, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, in a moment. But before we do this, Jesus refers to this kind of obscure Old Testament story from 1 Samuel chapter 21. And it's a story of David. He's fleeing from King Saul, who's trying to kill David. And he comes to a town where there's a, a, a holy place, and a priest offers him bread that was supposed to be only eaten by the priests. And but, but God permitted David to eat that bread. So what's going on? What is Jesus doing in referring to this kind of a, obscure Old Testament story? Well, see, the Pharisees, they're concerned with who's in and who's out. They're concerned with who's in the group or who's in the good, who's, who are the good people and who are the righteous rule followers and who's not, who are the bad people, who are those other people. What Jesus is doing is in referring to this Old Testament story is illustrating that the important thing is not which group you are in, but it's your relationship to God. So he's saying it's not important which group you're in. Are you of Levi or a priest? Are you of the tribe of Judah like David? No, no, no. What's important is your relationship to God. See, this is the first truth I want to offer us this morning. 
It's that Jesus, not your group, offers complete acceptance. Now, think about all the groups that you find yourself in. Now, real quick, I want to see who, who are the Ohio State alumni in the house here. Okay. So, I know if I know Ohio State folks, the passion about... Ohio State, and many of them are part of a boosters club or alumni clubs. So imagine if um, you're part of this group. I went to Ohio State, and I, I, I donate, and I support the team. And imagine you uh, got on one of those buses they'll charter, and they're going to um, go see the Michigan game next year. Imagine if you show up, but you've been part of the group for a long time, and you're ready to get on the bus, and you show up in a yellow sweatshirt. He ain't getting on the bus, right? I don't care how much money you've given, you're, you ain't getting on the bus. Because that group, there's some rules you've got to follow in order to be in that group. I mean, think about your, your uh, work baseball, uh, softball team. If you go 0 for 20, I don't care how good of a project manager you are, right? You're, you're riding the bench, you think about uh, if you're in a political organization and your political views begin to change, well, you get the boot. <laughs> I mean, there are, there are virtually every group we find ourselves, to some degree, is your acceptance is conditional. You know, even think about those that are most close to you, your best friend, your roommates, your, your, your friend group at school, your children, your spouse. You can probably imagine something that if you would do that thing would cause you to be excluded, kicked out of the family, divorced, sent away. The good thing is, the beautiful thing, and the gospel says that Jesus is different. You see, if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus, you are accepted completely. And there's nothing you can do to invalidate that acceptance. If, if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, there is nothing, nothing you can do to be rejected. You may be rejected from every, by everyone else, but you are still accepted by Jesus Christ. I mean, you think about his ragtag group of disciples that, are, that he's defending in this moment. He knows that one of them, the leader, will deny he even knows Jesus in Jesus' greatest moment of need. And another one will doubt and reject that Jesus could even rise from the dead, even though Jesus allowed this guy to follow along with him for three years. But still, Jesus uses those men who abandoned Jesus at his greatest moment of need. And he, but Jesus will never abandon you in your greatest moment of need. You see, Jesus, not your group, offers complete acceptance. You know, I want to give you a challenge. I think, uh, you know, one thing about... Um, an interesting thing about the years that I was the pastor of young adults here is that there's so many young adults that I would spend time with and talk to that would always keep relationships at a distance because they were afraid if a person, whether they're their friend or a romantic interest, got too close, they would find out too much and reject them outright. And there's an insecurity 
that resulted in them being so lonely and so afraid. But the beautiful thing about Jesus is that he offers us complete acceptance. And my challenge for you, maybe you're one of those people that you need to believe that you can be accepted completely. Maybe you need to believe that what Jesus says is true, that he really has that big of a heart. His forgiveness is that really that deep. His love for you is really that wide that he'd be able to accept you completely even though he knows where you've been, he knows what you've done, he knows what you've thought. You see, Jesus accepts you even at your worst because he knows you at your worst. And that's what he's saying in verse 5. Look with me in verse 5. Jesus says that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now this is kind of a confusing phrase. So let's unpack it for a moment. The Son of Man is a title that Jesus uses for himself all throughout the Gospels. And it alludes back to two very important Old Testament passages that shows this unique figure is somehow God or related to God in a special way. And Jesus is saying that I am Lord of the Sabbath. Lord means ruler or master or person of authority. So Jesus is saying, I am the ruler over the Sabbath. I am the master over the Sabbath. I have authority over the Sabbath. I am a higher authority than the commandment, the fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments. I have higher authority than the Ten Commandments. I have higher authority than all the commandments in Scripture. What Jesus is saying here is that he is God. Because the only laws that someone is above are those laws that they create. See, the only, the, the only uh, laws that someone is above are the laws that someone creates. And let me illustrate this. So my, we have a four-year-old, two-year-old, and we have a, um, a great community of young uh, uh, families here at CVCs. We a lot of time have, have them over for lunch and stuff, and Deb, you know, we make lunch. So if you're a, a young mom, you know it's a challenge to get your children to eat uh, anything that's not like brightly colored and covered in sugar, you know. Um, so a lot of moms will say, all right, you know, here's your, your lunch. You've got your PB&J, you know, you've got your carrots and, and whatever else, some fruit. You, if you eat all of this lunch, then you can have a piece of chocolate. Okay? Kids don't like that. No, I want the chocolate now. No, no, you, you eat all your lunch and you can have a piece of chocolate. So what happens is the kid will eat all of his lunch and then you can give him a piece of chocolate. And then the child, okay, time for, time for nap. You put him up there for nap time. Well, the, the mom is like uh, uh, my, my wife. Uh, she hasn't eaten her lunch because uh, she's trying to scram with the kids. So she puts the kids down. You know what she does? She goes and eats a piece of chocolate. That's right. <laughs> she's like, this is lunch. Thank you. But that's okay because my wife or a mother has authority to make laws within the home so that the child will have healthy eating habits. But I tell you one thing that, that a mother's not able to say or is wrong to say. If you don't eat this lunch, 
then I won't love you and you're out of the family. They would never say that because there's a higher law that beholds, that the, that the mother is beholden to. So she can't say that because there's a divine law that says mothers and fathers are to care for their children. So you think, of it, okay, let me, another illustration. Say you're a coach. You know, you blow your whistle. Hey guys, time to do some line sprints. Oh, great. So, you know, everyone lines up. Blow your whistle. Everyone starts. And what does the coach do? <laughs> Watches them run, right? And that's okay because the coach has authority and responsibility for that team. So he gets to make the, the rules and he gets to make the laws. Now, the, this does not mean that those laws are arbitrary. Far from it. It is a good thing for a mother to try to develop healthy eating habits for their child. Or for a coach to work, allow, or, or challenge his team to work hard so they can perform the best they can on the playing field. Well, the Old Testament law is the exact same way. You see, the Pharisees think that the law is something you do to be loved by God. No, no. The law is there because you are loved by God. It's easy to think that the Ten Commandments and the rules and directions we find in the Bible are an arbitrary list of, God, of, of, of just things that God thought up one day that might be a good idea in order to find out who's going to be a good person and who's going to be a bad person. It's as if God, you know, in his divine wisdom said, uh, don't, uh, don't kill. Yeah, 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 don't, don't kill. I'll just say that's bad. Um, don't, don't commit adultery. Eh, that'll be hard for him, you know. Um, uh, oh, here's a good one. Here's one really arbitrary. Don't work on Saturdays. You know, I rest I don't need rest. It'll really throw him a curveball. No, that is absolutely not the, the, the nature of the law. You see, the law is a loving gift from God because the law shows us what God is like. See, the, the law, the Ten Commandments, shows us God's character, his qualities, and his attributes. The Sabbath law, God does not need rest. The Bible says he does neither rest nor slumber. But he knows that we do. That our bodies and our relationships will break down if we don't rest. And what he says with do not kill. In that simple statement, he's elevating the value of every person in the world. No matter their age, no matter their life stage, no matter their socioeconomic level. And he says... Humans are of a higher value than everything else. And they're mine. And I love them. And if you take one of their lives, you have me to answer. Because I want, I, want I want people to be valued. You think of do not steal. Do not steal is basically the bigger, stronger, smarter. Doesn't get to have everything. Because they're bigger and stronger. No, no, no. I've, I, want to, I provide for all people. And even if you've been given unique gifts, you don't get to, you don't get to uh, uh, abuse people who haven't been given those gifts. You see, the law is an expression of God's character, 
of his attributes. And who is he at the core? God is love. And that's why in Matthew 22, Jesus can sum up all the prophets and all the law with this statement. Love God and love others. So this is what Jesus is saying. When he's saying the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He's saying, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the one who wrote that law. I'm the one whose character is shown in that law. And look to me if you want to know the heart of God. And now this next scene, he illustrates the purpose of the law and the purpose of God's character. So let's look at verse 6. Verse 6, where are we? On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching a man, or excuse me, and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. I mean, can you imagine this scene? So here they are on, on a Saturday in the synagogue. And Jesus is up there teaching on the Sabbath. And there's you know, people in rows. There are men on one side, women on the other. And in the middle of his sermon, there's a man in the, in the congregation with a withered hand. Now, and, and, and Luke, being the physician, uh, specifies it's his right hand. That's the hand of strength. That's the hand often of greeting, of work. It's a culturally, economically, and physically debilitating condition. So he tells this guy, in the middle of a sermon, Hey, you, come here. Right, a guy's sitting there. He's thinking, who's he talking to? You know. So he gets up, stands in the middle. And then there's the Pharisees in the back, right behind the pew, you know, looking up, you know. They got their clipboard, ready to find anything that Jesus says that's wrong, does that's wrong. And in the parallel passage in Mark that, re that tells the same story, it says Jesus looks at them in anger. He's angry because he knows what they're thinking. He knows their heart. And then he poses this question. What's the purpose of the law? What's the purpose of all of this? Is it to do good or, or to harm? Is it to save life? Or is it to destroy life? Well, clearly, what Jesus is doing here He's saying, look, the purpose of the law, the purpose of the Bible is restoration, not separation. The reason God gave us this is for restoration. 
It's to restore people to God, restore people to their family, to their friends, to their community, to restore their psyche, thereby everything about them. The purpose is not for separation, which the, which the Pharisees were doing. And I have a question for our church. In our services, in our life groups, in our ministries, in our conversations, do we use the law for restoration or for separation? Do we use the law for restoration or separation? Well, how does the law restore? The law restores by showing us our need and bringing us to the only source of restoration, which is God himself. Look closely at verse 10. Look with me at verse 10. The, very, the second half, it said, Stretch out your hand, and he did so, and his hand was, what's that word? Restored. This is the only time this word is used in the entire Gospel of Luke. Every other time, we see the word healed. It's the Greek word therapeuo, which we get the word therapy from. But this is a odd strange word that's supposed to catch our eye. And it's making this important point. Religion, Phariseeism, rule keeping does not restore. Jesus does. And when you encounter Jesus, the result is always restoration. And far too often, us Christians, we use the law to try to make us feel good about ourselves. Rather than drawing us to the source of restoration. Because Jesus, not the law, restores. Only in Jesus will we experience true and lasting restoration. See, the heart of God is this. You have been unconditionally accepted through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus then begins the process of restoration in your life. And now we have the law to show us how we can respond in gratitude to God. You see, religion says, I'm accepted because I obey. Jesus says, Obey because you are accepted. And that's what Pharisees, both ancient and modern, don't get. <laughs> and that's why they respond in the crazy way they do in verse 11. But before we get there, I want to give you a challenge. You see, Jesus, not the law, restores. But the law does show us God's character. And it shows us how we can respond in gratitude to God. So here's my challenge. Obey the law, but with a grateful heart. Obey the law, but do it with a grateful heart. You see, um, something Deborah and I had to work out in our marriage is that I, um, I'm not a gift guy. Like, I don't need or want gifts. Um, and uh, that's caused my wife much consternation. Um, I think it's because I'm, uh, what's the word, cheap, I think would be <laughs> the accurate thing. So I'll give Deborah gifts, but I'm like, nah, don't need anything, don't spend the money, right? But Deborah loves to give gifts. So she would say, you know, what do you want for anniversary or birthday? I'm like, nothing, nothing. Well, that wasn't 
She didn't like that. She's like, I want to sh- show something, some form of gratitude because I love you as, uh, you know, you know, as my husband and all that stuff. So we've come to come to agreement where I've kind of given her some guidelines. Like, okay, these are things that I would probably maybe like. And then now she's able to uh, make, make some of those purchases. Well, th- I think the law is that way. You see, what if we had no idea how to express our gratitude to God? What if we just didn't know, like, like God sent his son Jesus, he saves us, he loves us, he provides for us, he cares for us. What if we didn't know what to do? Well, what God's done is he's shown us, look, you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And that's all I want from you. I want you to just live according to what's best for your life. And that's what I want. I want to see my children flourish. I want to see my children Obey with a grateful heart. So maybe you're here and you've always looked at the Old Testament or the New Testament even as a list of do's and don'ts you just kind of have to begrudgingly keep. My encouragement, I hope you see that that's not the heart behind the Bible. And maybe today you can turn a new leaf and and, and say, God, I want to obey your word out of a grateful heart for what you have done for me through your son, Jesus. Well, uh, let me close our time uh, looking at verse 11, and then I want to also uh, share a story that I came across this week. All right, let's look at verse 11. It says, uh, But they, the Pharisees, were filled with fury and discussed with, discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Like, isn't this crazy? Like, how terrible of a person do you have to be to see a man miraculously restored and then become furious that the healer would do something on a day and do something that you think shouldn't be done on this day? You see, one of their rules is that a physician could not help anyone in need on the Sabbath unless it was a life or death uh, situation. Well, they thought, well, this isn't life or death. This man can wait until Sunday. That was what was in their heart. And it's almost hard to believe, I feel like. Like, how could you respond this way? But I know for a fact, there are many people in this room right now who have been treated like that by a Pharisee. Maybe you've come to faith, and you were so excited about your faith, and Maybe you did something or said something that was different or maybe a little, well, what you're supposed to say and someone came down hard on you. Oh, you're not supposed to say that. Christians don't do that. Christians don't say that. You need to change. You need to get some different clothes, right? And maybe you've experienced Pharisees and maybe that's, maybe you were part of a community where most of them were Pharisees. And I tell you, if you're here this morning and you've been hurt, by a Pharisee, even if that person's in this church and in this room, I just want to say, from a religious person to you, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry that's hurt, that, that's happened to you, that you've experienced that hurt. But I want to tell you this. Jesus, not the Pharisees, is true Christianity. And my hope is that you can look beyond the Pharisees to Jesus himself. That you can look past those, 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 the self-righteousness, the harsh words, the anger, 
And you can look to the only source of restoration for your life and the only hope of forgiveness of sins. And that's Jesus Christ. So my challenge for you, if you've been hurt by Pharisees, my challenge is don't give up on Jesus because of the Pharisees. Don't give up. He is too good. He is too precious. He's too strong and pure and righteous. Don't give up on him. Because some mealy mouth, self-righteous, sinners, judgmental people like yours truly could pull you away from the one true Savior. I want to share with you a story that I came across this past week that I think illustrates how to do this. Look beyond the Pharisees to the one true Savior of our souls. Three weeks ago, I checked out the audiobook of Frederick Douglass's first autobiography called Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass. Douglass was a mid-19th century abolitionist and preacher that God used in amazing ways in our country. Uh, and he understood to the depths the difference between Phariseeism and true Christianity. Let me tell you about his story. He uh, was born in slavery. And he had many uh, wicked slave masters, but none was harsher than a man named Captain Thomas Auld. And Douglas, when he was a teenager, heard of an of a, uh, uh, experience of his slave master. There was a man coming in town to do a revival service. And because of con some conjoling, Captain Thomas Auld attended. And look, I'll read from you from uh, Frederick Douglass's biography about that event. In August 1832, my master attended a religious campsite meeting held in the Bayside, Talbot County, and there experienced religion. I indulged a faint hope that his conversion would lead him to emancipate his slaves, and that if he did not do this, it would at any rate make him more kind and humane. I was disappointed in both of these respects. It neither made him to be humane to his slaves nor to emancipate them. If it had any effect on his character, it made him more cruel and hateful in all his ways. For I believe him to have been a much worse man after his conversion than before. Prior to his conversion, he relied upon his own depravity to shield and sustain him in his savage barbarity. But after his conversion, he found religious sanction and support for his, his slaveholding cruelty. And Captain Thomas Auld was known to quote scripture as he beat and whipped his slaves until the blood flowed. But this hypocrisy and this Phariseeism did not stop Frederick Douglass from meeting Jesus. Look what Frederick Douglass later writes. I was not more than 13 years old when my loneliness and destitution, I longed for someone to whom I could go as to a father and protector. The preaching of a Methodist minister named Hansen was the means of causing me to feel that in God I had such a friend. He thought that all men, great and small, bond and free, were sinners in the sight of God, that they were by nature rebels against his government, and that they must repent of their sins and be reconciled to God through Christ. 
I cannot say that I had a very distinct notion of what was required of me. But one thing I did know. I was wretched and had no means of making myself otherwise. What a beautiful story of a man who experienced firsthand great hypocrisy. But was still, he did not let the Pharisees keep him from Jesus. Well, at age 20, Frederick Douglass escaped slavery and became a famous abolitionist and Christian preacher. And 40 years after he escaped slavery, he was giving a lecture in the north. And a woman uh, came up to him after his lecture and said, Hi, Mr. Douglass, um, I'm a distant relative of Thomas Auld. I just want you to know that I've changed my ways, uh, my views on slavery. And I want you to know that he still lives at the same plantation, in the same house, and he's actually on his deathbed. So I thought you might want to know that. What Frederick Douglass did was he decided to go visit his former slave master. And he went, did the trek down south. And a number of uh, journals and newspapers report on this meeting. That Frederick Douglass had the opportunity, while Thomas Auld was on his deathbed, to extend forgiveness to this man. And also, the newspapers report that Thomas Auld was able to ask repentance, was able to ask forgiveness of Frederick Douglass. And all the papers say both men wept tears of joy and they embraced. I tell you what, that's not possible if Frederick Douglass would not have cast his eyes from the Pharisees to Jesus. And God used Frederick Douglass to restore a Pharisee to Jesus. And maybe you are here, maybe you've been hurt by Pharisees, and maybe God, maybe God will use your life to restore Pharisees to him. I don't know. We talk about your one. Well, there's one person you're praying for that you desire to see restoration through Jesus Christ. Maybe that one is the biggest Pharisee you know. Because most likely that Pharisee's heart is so shriveled that only an amazing expression of love could get through. Well, I do know that I, in my own life, God knows, have been guilty of hypocrisy, has been guilty of sin, which I, I, I hope many of us in this room would agree. Well, in a moment, we're going to have the opportunity to celebrate communion. I'm going to invite the team together. Pastor Nate's going to lead this time. But we're going to come together and remember what Christ has done for us on the cross. And we can express our gratitude of the great, amazing, beautiful experience that we have experienced through the saving work of Christ.